good to see you all. Really, really happy to see. If you're brand new with us, just kind of how we do things here is that we uh, tend to teach in kind of a a series. So if you're joining us online, this is kind of the third part of a a three, a six-part series or five-part series. So we're not going to be able to wrap it all up today. And yeah, you can always go back and listen to the previous weeks, but it's actually a, a larger part of a larger series, just kind of a sub-series, and so if you think of like shows, you got seasons and you got series, and so we're in a season on called God With Us, and here's kind of the big idea, really, really pretty simple to understand, the whole goal of Christianity, all of it, the whole goal, like so different than every other worldview, the whole goal of Christianity is that the God of the universe wants to be with you forever whole goal the whole goal so we can all talk about how all that happens and all different things but the whole goal is god is orchestrating all things bending and shaping all things so that at some point you and i can arrive with god forever ever god will be with us and so what we learned last week is it's about this christmas season is about presence p-r-e-s-e-n-c-e not more presence you know the, the gifts and so god with us is the story of his presence with us and what we talked about last week was not only do we get God's presence. That's a part of what he offers us at Christmas, but what he calls us to is not just his presence, but his partnership. So what we've been doing, which is a little different than uh, previous years and what most churches do around the Christmas season, is we're not really covering the pageantry of the Christmas story. We'll get all that on uh, on Christmas Eve, but we're not really uh, reading about the shepherds and the wise men and, you know, and the angel and the, the north star and the baby and the manger, because that's a, a very small snapshot of what uh, the Christmas story is all about, right? The whole story of Christmas is that God put on a body and stepped down on this planet. So what we've decided to do is highlight how he put on that body and how he actually brought his presence with us. So what we've been doing over the last several months and last several, several weeks specifically on this part is we've been studying a book of the Bible called the Gospel of Luke, okay? So the Gospel of Luke, this guy Luke was a physician, uh, who was hired, uh, no joke, not folklore, myth, or legend, real story, real people, by this guy named Theophilus, okay? This guy, we believe, because he is called, uh, you know, most holy, mighty, uh, master, servant, or God, uh, not God, holy, mighty person, right? So he, the titles we see for him both in the book of Acts and then also in, you know, secular writing uh, kind of reveal that this guy was probably a Roman government official. So, uh, uh, you know, a, a high official with lots of influence, Lots of affluence. And he um, was trying to figure out whether or not he could believe the story of this guy, Jesus, right? So uh, what's happened is this guy's kind of watched from, you know, the, the sidelines. The story of Jesus take place where he shows up and declares he's God. The reason he knows he declares he's God is he's quoted as declaring he's God. And then he's actually murdered for that belief by religious leaders and by government officials that say, no, 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 you can't pretend to be God because God is either out there or we as Roman officials want to be worshipped as God. And so Theophilus would have been trained in his life to make this weird declaration. And the declaration he would have made was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is boss. Caesar is, is divinity in many senses and so he is trying to figure out whether or not he should continue to say the false thing about caesar being lord which makes his life a little bit more comfortable but it's just not true or whether or not he should transition to actually declaring this guy who he heard about who lived a perfect life then was brutally murdered for the declaration that he was god and then came back to life and then revealed himself to the first century disciples and so this guy is hearing all the stories and going is that true 
So he hires a really brilliant academic physician, investigative journalist to go and do the hard work of researching the life of Jesus. So when we think about the Gospel of Luke, what we're really talking about is a biographical sketch about Jesus' life written by Luke. So Luke tells us in Luke chapter 1 that he goes and sits down with all the eyewitnesses. He goes and listens to all the uh, oral reports about it. Goes and reads all the written documents. That'd be the Gospel of Matthew and Mark and, you know, uh, Greek and Roman writing. He had gone and gathered it all and he is going to make kind of a a decision about what we can believe about Jesus, right? And so he tells us in Luke chapter 1, very beginning of his writing, that he writes all these things so that we could have certainty about the things that we've been taught. And so when we think about what Luke is saying, he's writing to this guy, Theophilus, so we say it this way. Uh, the scriptures are timely, meaning when Luke presents his report, right? He presents his report to Theophilus. It is very mission critical for that moment, the Theophilus, to receive this biographical manuscript about Jesus, right? It is timely, meaning it is very specific to that moment. But the brilliance and nuance of the scriptures is it's not just timely, it's timeless. Meaning it's just as important. This is so crazy, right? It's just as important 2,000 years later uh, for us today as it was then. And so the way that we've kind of been looking at it is by having this timeline, right? Imagining that if this timeline extends going both directions, there's kind of this moment in history where Jesus shows up and kind of splits time. And so we think about that. Somewhere way over here would be 2020, right? So 2020. So what we're talking about now, timeless, from this moment, timely. And so we just kind of been jumping back and forth. We're going to do it again today. And so somehow where way out here in the future will be the moment where God returns. Jesus returns and makes all things right. The scriptures tell us that he will wipe every tear. There'll be no more sadness, no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. That's not today. That is a day, and that's the promise that Luke says we can have certainty about. So we've just kind of been walking through that going, okay, is that true, not true? But the way that I would define the gospel of Luke and and the scriptures is there's two different parts of scriptures, right? There's the Old Testament. That's 39 books written prior to Jesus that are all about this, a promise, right? Promise. That all through the Old Testament, there is a promise that one day God would make everything right. There is a promise that one day he would work out all the pain, all the sorrow, and that he would be with us forever. So this is the Old Testament, the promise. Then the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, begins with acknowledging that promise. And then what we see is kind of this intersection of what we call fulfillment. And that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises. So that's the review. That's what's going on. And so what we've seen, though, that Jesus is he's talking about bringing his presence and inviting us into partnership, what we've seen happen over the last couple of weeks, definitely going to see happen today, is that Jesus is actually starting to invite people to partner with him for the sake of the gospel, to partner with him, to go and make it simple for people to connect to him and to connect to one another, to partner with him, to actually go and bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Jesus is going to teach these guys that he partners with how to pray, and he's going to say, hey, the way that you pray is you invite God into your life. You invite God to have his way, that his kingdom should come. His will should be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're going to see this play out. And what's really interesting is Jesus has already invited four guys to kind of follow him. Uh, That would be Peter and Andrew. Those are brothers. They're fishermen. And John and James, those are brothers, not with Peter and Andrew, but they would have been fishermen in this little bitty tiny town called Capernaum. And so he invited them into this. And so these are guys who were not highly educated, probably had dirty mouths, like had a rough uh, profession, probably some rough parts of their life. And Jesus starts with these four guys and invites them in to follow him. So he is picking people who no one else would pick. 
So when the neat things you go, well, if God wants to bring me his presence and he wants to invite me into his partnership, are you sure it's me, not the person beside me or the, the person who went to church all the time or my grandmother or my uncle or my coworker? No, no, no. What you see, the story of the gospel is God invites the, the most um, unlikely candidates to do the most amazing work with his power and his presence and his partnership. Right, and so we're going to see that play out. So it just played out last week as Jesus is in this little town called Capernaum. That's uh, where his buddy Peter lives and Andrew lives, probably where James and John live. And so while Jesus is from Nazareth, a little town in Galilee, this is another town on the Sea of Galilee and not a big, well-known town. There's probably only 100, 150 people that live in this town. The, literally, the entire town is probably not much bigger than the footprint of our church building. Right, so this is not a huge place, and they literally all the different te- all the different homes kind of share walls between them, and so Jesus is going to kind of make this his ministry headquarters. Okay, the work that he's going to do for the next couple of years is all going to happen in this town called Capernaum. And what we saw last week is Jesus is teaching in this little town called Capernaum, and while he's teaching, all these people are kind of kind of crowded in and trying to hear his words. Many of them are trying to catch him up on to see if he's going to say something that could get him thrown in jail. Some are there for the the entertainment of the show others genuinely are trying to learn and we saw these four friends or these multiple friends who bring their buddy who's paralyzed to jesus they can't get in the rooms what they do is they they do a felonious act they commit a felony they destroy the top of a roof and they lower him uh, their buddy down and jesus heals their buddy and everybody's going hey only god could do those things right so there's this big amazement and immediately following that amazement got some people starting to believe the story of jesus and then he's going to go and do something crazy and this may be on the very same day it might be the next day he's going to do something really really crazy and it's going to take me a second to read it and explain it to you but here's where it is on luke chapter 5 beginning in verse 27 so just moving right along he's still in capernaum probably maybe the same day after he just healed this man and, and forgave him of his sin set him right for now and for all eternity right and so maybe the same day next day here's what we get luke chapter 5 verse 27 after this he went out and saw a tax collector named levi okay so now we're going to see this neat little moment where jesus's life is going to intersect with this guy named levi a tax collector so this is timely in a moment jesus is coming and he's going to intersect with this guy and he's a tax collector and it says this that he was sitting at the tax booth and he said to him follow me by the way we've talked about this before we'll continue to talk about this when we think about invitations that you learned about it in church you know there's the last song they invite people down you know billy graham you know big uh, revivals there's like this moment called the invitation you sing just as i am and pray the prayer um while those are very beneficial and for many of us, that was the way that we came to faith. That's the way I came to faith. The reality in the, in, in the scriptures is the invitation that Jesus offers isn't pray a prayer. The invitation that Jesus continually offers to the first century disciples is follow me. So what you see here in this moment is the way by which you get in on the kingdom work is you follow Jesus, right? You follow him. That's important, right? Because in order to have, be in his presence, you need to be close to him. So you follow him. In order to be in partnership, you have to follow him and they would have understood this uh that invitation because that would have been the invitation that rabbis would have made to their best students in hebrew school so uh kids were growing up they all one of the the best jobs would have been to be a rabbi right and so they all all the jews would have gone to hebrew school they would have probably memorized if they could many of them the first five books of the of the torah the bible uh genesis exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy they'd have memorized that stuff 
right? You, do you understand how different it is from our world, right? Like they had to memorize all 613 laws. They would have memorized it all, and the greatest students would have been invited. They would have said, hey, hey, uh, follow me. And these guys would have gone, ooh, we'll follow you. And their parents would have thrown a big party. Our kid is going to be a rabbi. Woo-hoo, this is better than a doctor or a lawyer or anything else, or even a, you know, a professional athlete. Right? He's, he's going to be a rabbi. They'd had this big party to celebrate this kid who's now going to be a rabbi because he's invited by the rabbi to follow him, right? And so they would have understood this term that Jesus is inviting them to go, hey, follow me, meaning you get to be in my presence. You get to be in my partnership. And so these are guys who are a lot older, right? They're, they already have jobs. They're fishermen, or this guy's a tax collector. And so these aren't 12 and 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds that, that, that the rabbis would have invited. These are guys who are well past their prime in terms of those things, and now they're all of a sudden getting this invitation to follow him. So that's the invitation in the scriptures. That's our invitation, is to follow him. And it says this, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So I go, oh, that's a really, really neat story, and it's really easy uh, to kind of miss all this. And many of you, you're smart, you're bright, you, you know these things. If you grew up in church, you've heard these things. But just to make sure we all are on the same page, understand this, don't want anybody to you know, feel left behind in this. There's something really significant about this moment. Because when Jesus shows up and invites uh, the fishermen, it's kind of like, oh, that's strange. Those guys have dirty mouths. They, they're, they're profane. They're not very godly. They fish on, sun, uh, on the Sabbath, and so they don't come into the synagogue. How in the world would he invite them to be in his little pact of, you know, his rabbi school or his, you know, yoke of teaching? How in the world? So that one had been a little bit like, how, how does that happen? But they weren't considered like, Outcast. I mean, fishermen were, was, a, was a profession. It was just a blue-collar profession. They know these guys, this time, when Jesus does this next, he's just proved that he's God by forgiving sins and bringing a, a, helping a guy stand up and walk all the people, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees in the room. They were all pretty amazed. This was a pretty interesting moment to kind of get a, you know, a stamp of approval on, okay, maybe this guy is who he says he is. And the next thing he does is he goes and he invites a tax collector. Now, these guys were horrific. They I, I use a term that is uncomfortable, but these are worse than child molesters in the first century. Like, you want to think about the, the worst of the worst that just you have absolute disdain for. These are those people. These are them. So there is a moment in tax collectors' life where they have to decide whether or not they're going to be alone but have all the means they ever want and have, be able to buy people and buy affection and they're going to have all the affluence with all the money as a tax collector but there is going to be a price to pay and tax collectors over and over again made that decision to to be kind of ostracized from their community because what a tax collector would do and this is one in Capernaum so we can assume he probably knows Peter and Andrew and James and John he would have taken their tolls right like he would have received the text and so um, the tax collector would have had all the power and authority of the Roman government and the Roman government uh, heavily taxed people. And so there would, there would be a, a percentage. So let's just come up with a percentage, 20%, right? 20% of, or 30% of their, of their income, Jews' income, um, maybe something like that, they would have to give to the Roman government. Now, um, all that was collected by a tax collector, and every single bit of that would have been accounted for. There would have been almost audits and this stuff, and that money would have been given to the Roman government. But the way by which a tax collector got paid Right, it's kind of like how a waiter gets paid. You, you get the $2 an hour, but really the way by which they make money is on the tips, right? And so the way by which a tax collector would get paid is they would not say 30%, they would say 60%. You'd give us 60% of your income. 
and he'd have all the power and authority of the Roman government to back it. And they would demand it. If these people didn't do it, they'd be thrown into jail. They would become indentured servants. I mean, this is a horrific thing. And so these tax collectors could double, triple the amount that the Roman government was expecting. And that's where they got their income. So they owed 30% to the the, the, the Roman government, but they said you have to pay 50%, 60%. Guess what that means? That's 20 or 30% of this person's income that now becomes their income. And there is nothing that people could do about it. Right? Some of you are having that experience in a different way this Christmas season. You bought stuff on, um, on Cyber Monday and Black Friday, and you got it shipped. Right? I don't know if you've had any trouble with shipping lately, but there's a lot of shipping frustration. There is a lot of people really angry. I'm waiting on a on a something for our house for the basement. It was supposed to be on Thursday and Friday, and it's one of those things that you have to do the adult signature. I don't. So I had to, and I thought, okay, I'll have it shipped to the church because someone will be here. And then I was watching the delivery date, and it's supposed to be Friday at you know between 10 and 1. Then it went later and later. So I s- sat here for to about. 5.30, and I went home and came back and waited, and it gets to about 8 o'clock, and then it goes to pending status. Like, what in the world? And so I go home, and I call them. And they go, oh, I'll be here tomorrow. And so I wait and call them, and I call them, and I call them. And finally, last night, I got back in touch with them. They're like, ah, we don't really know. Sorry. We don't know where it is. We don't know when it's going to get to you. Suck it up, buttercup. There's just nothing we can do. And I'm like, what? Like, how old does this work? And I'm like, oh, gosh, Josh, be a Christian. Be a Christian. Be a Christian. Be a Christian. Jesus, you speak through me. Oh, sorry, that wasn't you, Jesus, right? And so, yeah, but they just basically just kind of go, sorry, bud. There ain't my, there's just nothing you can do about it. There's no, I, can I talk to someone else? Like, can, like that's what I do. I, like, you don't get it. I, I talk for a living. Like, I can, can you just, like, can you, can you beam me to another supervisor? And they're going, look, I, we don't even know where it is. We know what it is, right? So frustrating. In the silliest uh, first world, doesn't really matter. Great stuff to learn in the middle of this sense. But when you get to the point, you go, there's just nothing you can do to change it. Well, this is what first century Jews, that kind of their experience in a much worse scenario where the tax collector go, you owe me three times what you just gave me. And they go, no, 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 I can't pay that. Well, it doesn't matter. You have to pay it. Well, I can't pay it. Okay, then you're going to jail. Wait, wait, can't can't, can't we meet in some middle ground? No, 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 you just owe that to me. You can give me all your suffering. They, they, they were hated and despised, and they were responsible for so much deep and troubling poverty in the first century for Jews and for Romans. Like, a terrible, because, because if you're a Jew, you not only have to pay these taxes, you've got to pay temple taxes, and you've got to pay a tax to slaughter your lamb. And so all these Jews are basically, they're basically signing over deeds to their properties so they can pay their taxes, pay their temple tax and their Roman tax. So now all of a sudden, they don't even own property anymore. They're literally serving at the pleasure of some stakeholder somewhere else to the property, the vineyard that they was in their family forever. I mean, this has done uh, tremendous damage to a whole people group. And so... They were hated, and there was nothing they could do about it. Now, that's why many of the Jews are like, oh, God, could you send us a Savior just to save us from our tax poverty, right? You know, so that, and at least in the Old Testament, there was these plans for this year of Jubilees, where every 70 years it would be set right. Guess what? The Roman government didn't care about that. They didn't have chapter 7 and chapter 11 and chapter 17 or whatever the chapters are. Like, they didn't have those in bankruptcy. You just go to jail. And guess what? Once you go to jail, you can't even pay it anymore. So now you're just stuck in jail. You understand, like, the amount of weight that this guy held. And so these Pharisees and all the people are watching, Jesus just did some miracles. Like, oh, wow, this is so great. This could be our guy. And the next thing he does is he walks up to this guy with all this money. And he doesn't say, hey, give it back to him. He just says, come here. I want you to follow me. 
Like this would have been a slap in the face for every single Jew who would have watched this. Like this is not at all what anyone would expect from this God who was going to come and set all the world right, to invite people into his presence and invite people into partnership. And one of the first people, one of the first followers that Jesus offers is this guy. Right? I mean, this is, for many people, tragic. So, fairly, a lot of people are confused. A lot of people are really upset and angry. Fair. It's fair, right? And so when we read this, it's really easy just to see the two verses go, oh, that's really neat. But this isn't really neat. This is dangerous and almost ignorant of Jesus if he doesn't really know what he's doing. And this guy had all the money in the world, but you know what he didn't have? He didn't have hardly any community. So the only people that he knew in the whole world were people like him. Other tax collectors, other people who are kind of ostracized from the religious community, right? From the local community. And so this guy now is being invited in to Jesus. And it says that it started with two words, follow me. And it says that he left everything. So what does he do next? Have you thought about that? Like, so if you are a hated person and you get invited by Jesus to follow him and it says he immediately does it, what does he do next? Which is really, really important if we can understand this because I think this is where the church gets it really wrong is this what do we do next when we start following Jesus? What do we do? Right, I grew up in a fundamental Christian world which meant when you become a Christian, you cut your hair short, you, uh, you burn all your CDs or tape cassettes, you get rid of those T-shirts from the, you know, the rock music bands, you part your hair and you behave. Probably tuck your shirt in as well. Right? I mean, that was just, in this fundamental world, you start dressing nicer. You start using words like Brother Mike and Brother Joe and Brother Jim. Right? You, you just get this new vernacular and you, you kind of have to get your life in order pretty quick. And guess what else you do? You leave all your other friends. Right? That's, that's kind of what I learned in the fundamental world, which is, so backwards from what we're going to see, and I'm going to offer you some reasons why I think this is backwards and why we got to do this differently. So what does this guy do? This guy intersects with Jesus 2,000 years ago. What does he do, and how does he respond? And it's pretty crazy. Watch what he does next. Verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there, were large, there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. You see this? You, see, you pick up on this? You see what he does immediately after being invited in? He throws a party. See, this is so backwards from what I learned growing up in church. No, no, parties are actually bad. You don't do parties, right? You do holy huddles, and they're all the church, and they're prayer meetings, and don't you fall asleep, right? I mean, so they're so backwards. The first thing he does is he follows him, and so he goes, I'll follow you. No, Jesus, come here, come here, come here. And he throws a big feast. You see that great feast? This is massive. This is even, you know, frivolous in the amount of food and party and drink he's going to create and invite all of his buddies to it. And Jesus, who's the guest of honor, so he throws a party. He throws a party, right? There's something about this, uh, this idea that the church is not supposed to be filled with joy and hope and fun. Like somehow we've given all that away to the broken parts of our world. Right? Like community and joy and feasting. They should be massive parts of what we do as, as a church family. It's just so complicated right now in the middle of COVID, but we've got to figure this out. Because when we read the scriptures, that's what they do. They got together and they celebrated. And they celebrated often. This, there's a term for this in the first century. It's called tabling. Okay? Now, they didn't have movie theaters. There were some plays, some other things they could have gone to. But one of the great moments in first century living was tabling. 
That would be, and this wasn't something they do once every, you know, they wouldn't have a dinner club where they do it once every couple of months. Like this would be a normal part of a weekly moment for a family and a community, an extended family. They would table, right? They'd have this big feast where they would all kind of recline around the table. A lot of times, not like sitting up. They'd almost be, I mean, they'd be on close to the ground and they would be relaxed and they'd be able to eat and then they'd be able to lean back because they don't even have a chair and they could keep eating and just like, oh, you know, then like, you know, you did Thanksgiving, you just get all swelled up, right? You button, your top button and you could just lay there. Like that, it was that kind of deal, right? And so there was no football to go to. There was just this tabling, and it would last for hours. Like, not like a, you know, get it quick, eat your meal, let's get you in the bath, go to bed, good night, kids, right? This is hours. I'm talking about four, five, six hours of just hanging out, like kind of this progressive dinner where they break a little bread and dip it in olive oil, and then they'd have some wine, and then they'd have more food and they would chat for a while and then there'd be another entree and just this long beautiful moment you know they so if you've been to places like the melting pot you know how it goes in order it drives me insane because it's just not very efficient like bring it all let me eat it real quick let me get out of here right just part of the american culture but for them the tabling was a huge part of it so what does this guy do he invites all of his friends this big party he invites jesus and he brings this group together and somehow we miss this in the church. So we go, no, become a Christian, pray the prayer, go to the class. Memorize the scriptures, and they'll teach the class. Right? Like there's just this progression of go to Christianity 101, then 102, then 103, and 104, 105, 106, 107, 108, 109, 110. Okay, now you're probably cleaned up enough. Okay, now you can go talk to them. Right? This idea that we have to clean ourselves up and get everything perfect before we can actually jump into the mission of the gospel. And this is so the opposite of it. This isn't following your rabbi for years, and maybe one day you'll get to you know, be a rabbi. This is, hey, Levi, you're in. No, let's do this. Immediately, immediately he gets invited in, and then he throws a party, which just is so important to me, guys. And one of the things you'll read about that Christian alluded to the, uh, the, the quarterly publication where we kind of talk about what uh, 2021 will look like, and I don't have a lot of time to cover this, but just a couple minutes, I just want to point out that this is kind of shaping how we view 2021, that we know we can't be in everybody's collective homes, and it's even hard for us to do this socially, distant, but there are a handful of people that you can decide that you want to do life with and contract trace with, right? I mean, there's still ways to do this with a handful of people, and so I am convinced that in 2021, every single person in our church as a result of what you see here for Levi, every single person in our church should be connected to some kind of group, right? Every single person should be connected to some kind of group or team. Like, you should be known. That's a picture of the gospel. Even if you don't believe any of this stuff yet, you're going to see over and over again throughout the scriptures that God invites people in long before they become and believe. They're, they belong, right? And so you're going to see this. So I think every single person, we've got to figure this out, should be connected to a group. And every single one of these groups, you see this with Levi should be connected to a mission. I'm not talking about we just hang out. I'm talking about we have neighbors to reach and friends to reach and people in poverty, people to tutor, people to care for, people to help with their school. There are all around, when I look at the big gaps for 2021 for our church, what seems to be prevalent are groups. We got, we got about one-sixth of our people connected in community during the week. One-sixth. Okay? So groups. And then also church family care. How do we care for one another in the middle of this mess, right? How do we care for them? Those are big gaps. So big opportunities. We get to, we're going to do some more stuff online, but the, I still think one of the big opportunities is actually the, how are we going to serve our community? Like, guys, this isn't getting better in January. 
It's not going to get 2021 and like finally 2020 is over. I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer or a false prophet, but there's still going to be pain and sorrow and this sickness and illness will still be there and people will still not be able to work and people will still be hungry and there'll still be problems with food chain supply. There will be issues. And it, while that's a concerning and could be devastating for many people, that's also a great opportunity for the church to participate. So we're going, how do we help, help every single person in our church get connected to a group and how do we help every single one of those groups have a mission, whether it's to care for someone in your community, to care for a widow, to take care of a food bank, to make food for a lighthouse, whatever it is, right? We have strategic partners you can participate with, whatever it is. Every single group we want connected to a mission. And we're going, well, what are those missions for? Well, they should be the same mission that Jesus had, Right? Every single person connected to a group, every group connected to a mission, and every single one of those missions should be connected to the least, the lost, and the lonely. And there's a real good reason for that. Because if you want to find Jesus throughout the scriptures, if you want to spend time with Jesus, you want to be in his presence, guess where he is throughout the scriptures? He's with the least, the lost, and the lonely. In fact, when we find this moment, that describes Matthew really well, or Levi really, really well. He might have all the money in the world, but I promise you, he feels like the least of a Jew right now. I promise you, he is really, really lost. He thought all this money was going to make him happy, and it has left him wanting, and I promise you, he's really lonely. So Matthew gets invited in, and he goes, oh, I got a group of people. I got a group of people. They're just as pagan and broken as I am, and so they invite Jesus in, and so Jesus connects and has a party with a bunch of dirty broken sinners worse than child molesters you got it like this is this is so crazy that these are the people that jesus is spending time with and hear me this is immediate this isn't i gotta wait to learn the class do the thing this is immediate he throws the feast so he, he finds out about jesus and he goes we got a party people gotta know this guy they gotta know him right oh my goodness this changes everything these guys gotta know him here here come here come here you gotta see this guy right and so he throws the party now watch what happens and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? As if they're not. You know, they don't see it yet. And so I shared with you last week that uh, what we saw last week is a couple different groups of people, the scribes and the Pharisees. They showed up. They were the ones that were live blogging and tweeting the Capernaum moment. Uh, last week where they're like how in the world this guy he says he can forgive sins only god could do that and jesus goes oh i hear what you're saying let me show you i'll stand up and walk right and it says they left amazed in awe in worship so we see this moment for tax uh, for uh scribes and pharisees and we don't know if they're the same ones there's a real likelihood these are the same guys that all of a sudden they had their world blown that this might be god but then the next day they go oh he can't be god he is hanging with tax collectors he's with Levi. And so scribes are um, professional religious people. They would, have, they would have had all the extra letters after their name. They would have gone to grad school and seminary. They would have been able to parse the Greek and all the different kind of stuff, right? These are, these are brilliant people, and they would have had all the education, and they were seen as well-to-do, you know, professional white-collar class of Jews. Now, um, the way that you would know if they were a really good scribe had to do with how many followers they had, right? A leader is only a leader if people are following them. So these scribes would recruit kind of the working class people. Those were the Pharisees. So when you see it say, and their scribes, Pharisees and their scribes, meaning there would be the scribe who would be kind of teaching and leading and sharing with people the scriptures. So this probably is like a little Jewish uh, Judaism field trip. 
got the scribe going, hey, let's watch this. And now you got the Pharisees kind of following, and they're learning. And so this would be, I don't know, one scribe per 10, 20 Pharisees, five Pharisees, whatever it is. And so what we see is these scribes actually are noticing that Levi is with Jesus, and they go, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You notice this, though. It says, then scribes grumbled at his disciples. They're not saying this to him. You see this? They pull Peter and Andrew and James and John, and they're going, what is he doing? Like, what is he doing, right? Because these scribes, they, they kind of uh, um, believed in this, uh, this, you know, three degrees of separation. Not only could they not hang out with sinners, they weren't supposed to hang out with people who hung out with sinners, right? You know how this works now with COVID. You got all this. You understand that, right? You cannot only hang out with—if that person hung out with that person, but that person over there hung out with a person who had— COVID, then that person needs to tell this person who needs to tell this person, and then this person has to quarantine, right? You, you understand how that works, and so they would have believed kind of the same thing. You don't touch sinners. You don't get around sinners. You don't get around people who get around sinners. You don't get around people who get around people who get around sinners, right? And so these guys would not have gone in. They just said to, to, you know, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, hey, how can you follow this guy? How can you be close to him if he's close to this guy? So we can deduce that these scribes and pharisees aren't in the house but it's not like they had windows like nice little you know glass windows and i showed you a picture a while back of what capernaum looks like they're shared walls and tiny little 400 square foot spaces so you could see what's going on you can know what's going on you could be in other people's business so that's what happens and they are going how in the world do you hang out with this guy and how is this guy throwing a feast how does he eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners and jesus doesn't correct them on the eating, the drinking, and the tax collectors are sinners. He doesn't go, no, 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 I'm not eating or drinking, which, you know, he doesn't go, no, 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 they're not tax collectors, or no, 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 they're not sinners. Watch what he says to them. Here's what he says. So brilliant. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. <laughs> Here's the deal, guys, like, this is so weird. You want your holy huddle. You want to, you know, sit in a room and argue about the smaller points of Old Testament promises. All you got it together, right? You think your light's meant for a light convention, but your light's not meant for a light convention. You get that. You don't need more light when there's lots of light. In fact, you can't even use your light. Your light doesn't even have any, uh, you know, uh, efficacy in the middle of a bright room. It's just not helpful in any way. You know where you need light? In the middle of darkness. Right? And that's where it shines the brightest in the middle of darkness. He goes, so here, let me, get, let me understand this. One, you're using this third degree of separation. So you can't be close to a person who's been close to a person who's been close to a sinner. Right? Because somehow that sin, you might think, will rub off on you. And then rub off them. And then, you know, rub off them and them. And then finally land on you. Right? So you, don't, you can't be around that as if, like, there's some contagion with the sin. And we, we get that, right? Got it with COVID. But what we know, I mean, I see, I see like a whole row of, people right now who are essential workers in the middle of this mess right now you know what i'm saying and that the crazy thing is they put themselves right next to that illness every single day what jesus is saying yeah, yeah, they don't want to get it nobody wants to get the sin but the reality is who do you think needs this healing hey so you know a doctor is around sick people all day you know that because the sick person needs healing so who else is going to do it other than the person who gets close to the sick person so jesus goes hey here's the thing you think there's this issue with proximity but if you know a sick person and you know them, if you have a sick person what are you going to do you're going to take them to someone who can bring healing to them so of course of course 
I've come to bring healing to the sick. And then he says it this way in verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, these guys aren't going to get it yet. So they're going to think that Jesus is excluding them. Oh, he didn't come for us. Oh, boy, did he. That's one of the most damning and damaging sins in the entire world is religion. This idea that you think you can perform well enough to make God happy with you. This idea that you can follow all the rules and if you follow all the rules and finally God will welcome you back to the club. That is not true for two reasons. One, you can't follow all the rules. And two, you can't actually earn your way back to the God of the universe. It is a ladder that is too tall with too many rungs that is not even in your capability. Right? And so this idea that somehow you can perform well enough to, to appease God. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. We know it. You know this. You know that you can't. So here's what we do instead. Here's what we, I did in my fundamental Christian world. I finally came to the conclusion that I couldn't actually follow all the rules and do it all right. But I couldn't say that out loud because I thought other people could. You got it? And I thought maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just a broken one because Brother Bob and Brother Jim and Brother Joe they don't seem to have any problem with this, right? And so I just, I just stuffed it all. So guess what I did? Every single Sunday, every single Wednesday, I put on the mask. And I walked into church, and I pretended just like they did. And finally, when you get old enough, and as a pastor, I get to spend a lot of time with a lot of people who share a lot of stuff with me. A lot of stuff with me. And you finally come to the conclusion that you're not the only broken one. In fact, we're all really, really broken. We're just not very good about being honest about it. So we've not only not been able to follow the rules, we've created new rules where we pretend to follow the rules we've never actually followed in real life. Literally, I, the first church I served at was a church that basically said, you can't drink alcohol, period. And so in order to be a deacon, which is their form of elder at the church, you had to sign this contract saying, I will never drink. So these deacons are like, I know Brother Joe drinks. I know Brother Jim drinks. They're on deacons. Hey, why do y'all do that if you do that? And we're like, oh, we just signed it. We think it's silly, but it's just the best thing to do. Right? So there's just this, there's just these things you sign up for to pretend, and it's like just this fake righteousness on paper that has no real truth in it. And so the, the sad part is these scribes and Pharisees, they're not going to get it yet. And they're going to be so offended when Jesus calls to them. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, right? When he calls them out, they're going to be so angry. They're literally going to shut him down and plot to kill him, right? So a lot of them are going to miss it. So they're going to miss that when he says he didn't call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The reason he says that is because God tells us this way in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world. The reason Jesus says I didn't come to call the righteous, but call the sinners to repentance is because God so loved the world. And guess what the whole world is? Sinners who need to come to repentance. So in this moment... Levi gets this. He gets he's a sinner. He invites his friends to see Jesus. And he goes, hey, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. These are exactly the people I'm supposed to be around because these are folks who have come to the conclusion that they need help and a Savior. Why? Because they feel really least. They feel like the least. They feel really lost. And boy, do they feel lonely. And so what we see over and over again throughout the Scriptures and in human history is the people that are the most responsive to the gospel are those in the most pain. Why? Because they have a little bit more emotional intelligence than many of us do, right? They've, they've turned over all the other rocks and found those things couldn't fulfill them and they couldn't get distracted by the next paycheck or by the stuff in their fridge or their closet, right? 
They couldn't get distracted by all those things, the stuff in their garage, the toys they could play with, the screens, right? And so they finally come to the conclusion that there is something wrong and they need a Savior. So Jesus goes, look, this is why I'm here. This is the the low-hanging fruit. These are the folks who are primed and ready to respond to the gospel because I didn't come to call the righteous, but call the sinners to repentance. And what I don't want you to miss here is when he's talking about the sinners to repentance, he's talking about every single one of us. Every single one of us. So if that's what Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost, how do we respond in repentance? So one of the things that gets confusing in the church world, and I cover this a good bit, and we'll continue to, that the word repentance actually um, means to change the way you think. And philosophically, you get this. Uh, your thoughts become your beliefs. Your be- beliefs become your feelings. Or you can mix those up or kind of combine them, beliefs and feelings. Your thoughts become your beliefs and feelings. And then your beliefs and feelings become your actions, Right? So if you want to change the way you behave, you can't just change the way you behave. You have to change the way you think, right? That has to do with weight loss. That has to do with job search. That has to, has to do with relationships. You don't just start with trying to change a behavior. You'll never get anywhere. You have to actually go back and change the way you think. So when and Jesus says he calls people to repentance, they would have understood that in the Greek that he's saying in that moment that you have to change the way that you think and change what you think about. So one of the reasons I want to cover this material in this way is because I want us to change the way we think about the gospel and how we interact with it, right? And so somehow this tax collector who had it all wrong got this right, right? So he, he is meeting with sinners, and he's bringing them all together, and he's throwing a feast, maybe even, you know, a, a frivolous one with extra cost and extra waste, but he's throwing this party, and Jesus is engaging with them and giving them his presence. So we can just deduce by this, right? that there's something really profound about uh, tabling together. So I was thinking about that and working through it and going, ah, you know what's really interesting is tabling is all throughout the scriptures. So I'm going to do in about seven to ten minutes, I hate to put a time limit on it, and I can't promise I'll get to it that fast, but I'll talk really fast. Don't worry, I'll go really fast. Um, So I'm going to cover a lot of, I told you timeline, I'm going to cover a lot of scripture and a lot of different tabling and a lot of different meals. So we can see how meals impact the way that we respond to the gospel. And here's the really good news. Then we're going to finish by having a meal together. Communion, okay? So the first one that we can think about, go all the way back to the beginning where God was, and then he decided to create humans, and that would be right here in the beginning. He created Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve. Let's get this to stay there. There we go. Adam and Eve, right? So what we know about the scriptures in the beginning, it says that God walked in the garden to cool the night. So he created Adam and he created Eve. And you might have some opinions on that, but let's just talk about the first human beings. And when it tells us about the first human beings is when they were there, they were there for a very specific reason, to be loved with, by God, to be in his presence. And guess what else? To be in his partnership. So in the beginning, all that was perfect. And so in the beginning, God goes, oh, enjoy everything. Everything, eat, drink, be merry. Let's have a blast. God walked in the garden the cool night, meaning, he, meaning he's probably having dinner with them. Then he says, except, except don't eat from that tree. And you can go, well, that's really, really messed up. Why in the world would he dangle the carrot? And he's going, he's not dangling the carrot. He's actually in the middle of Genesis presenting his son. He's going to show them that they're, they're, in their arrogance and their righteousness and their un, you know, self-righteousness that they think they're going to be able to do their own thing and choose their own plan just like we do. And so what happens in the beginning is God tells them not to eat from that, and then this enemy, this enemy, you can go back a couple weeks to uh, week six of uh, Jesus for president and hear about the enemy, okay? So uh, this enemy shows up and says, God doesn't really love you. He actually just doesn't want you to be like him. So if you eat that fruit, you won't die. You'll actually be more alive. And they, 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 they took the bait. 
And it says they ate the fruit, right? And you might go, that's weird, that's strange, that sounds like a folklore, myth, or legend. What's really interesting, though, is actually the ramifications of eating that fruit, you would agree with this. The very first thing they did is they ate the fruit, and they looked down, and they realized they were naked. And then they became fearful. They were fearful because they were naked. What? Why does a naked body make you afraid? And then it said they felt shame. You ever get that? Think about bathing suit season. Mm-hmm. Right? Love those times, right? There's something about our body and the shame that comes with it. How in the world does our bodies make us feel so shameful? It doesn't matter how fit you are. There's just something about that that just makes you feel so flawed and broken. Don't believe me. Try to do jumping jacks after you get out of the shower. It's, you see what I mean? So, sorry. Uh, so, this is flawed and broken, right? And so what happens is they realize they're naked and felt shame, and so they hid. And then God goes, Adam, Eve, where are you? Like they, I mean, he knew where they were, right? He didn't ask the question for him. He asked the question for them so they could actually finally get some self-awareness like these scribes and Pharisees like we need. And they go, well, we looked down and saw that we were naked and felt shame, so we hid. See that? See, see the progression? We do something wrong, we feel shame, and then we hide. We do something wrong, we feel shame, and then we cover it up, right? I mean, that's just literally what happens. It gets even crazier. So then God goes, well, who told you that you were naked? Who told you about the fruit? Why did you do that? And Eve, what does she do? She blames the serpent. She goes, the enemy made me do it, right? But before that, God says to Adam, Adam, why'd you do that, bro? You know what he does? He throws his wife under the bus immediately, right? He goes, oh, Eve, Eve did it. Get out and get onto her. It's her fault. It's her. She ran her mouth. She made me do it. She, she did, right? Like this idea that somehow, like, this, he's standing before God, and he's throwing his precious wife under the bus. You see this, right? So he, we feel shame. We hide. We then blame, right? And it doesn't get any better. So this first meal starts with this forbidden fruit. And essentially what happened is, if you can imagine, God and Adam and Eve were kind of in the— the tabling together and God goes I can't table with you anymore right because you don't trust me you chose that over me you chose that piece of fruit you chose your pride over my presence and so God literally removes them from his presence and still points to this promise that one day one day the presence will be back and points to this way by which he can they can still partner and one day the fulfillment of that in fact in genesis chapter 3 he points to this solution the solution of the fruit forbidden fruit was pointed to in that very moment genesis chapter 3 that god would send a savior through eve's offspring through her dna there would come a savior who would fulfill all the things who would step down and bring back his presence and invite us back into his partnership so the forbidden fruit that first meal set all this up and all the mess that is that forbidden fruit is is the trajectory that landed levi where he landed that forbidden fruit's the trajectory that landed the scribes and pharisees where they landed so that's one meal then a couple thousand years uh, later, well, jumping right along, there's, a, there's another really, really um, interesting meal. So um, it just gets worse from here for thousands of years, right? Uh, you got the story of Noah where God literally wipes out a generation, puts them out of their misery and in a merciful act, then sets it up with uh, Noah, and then things get bad again. So then he sets things back up uh, about 2,000 years before he shows up with this guy named Abram. He makes Abram, and he says, I'm going to bless you. No matter what, I'm going to bless you. Like, you're not going to be able to fulfill all the promises, the rules, the law. You're not going to be able to do it. But I'm going to bless you anyway because that's who I am. I'm a good God. And he says, look up. See all the, all the stars. That's the number of people that are going to be your offspring. And I'm going to bless you. And you're going to bless them. And you're going to bless the whole world. And so he kind of set that up. And things go well for a while. And Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has these son, 12 sons that become the nation of Israel. 
And uh, one of the things that happens with Jacob's son, and they're in kind of this great little moment, and then uh, there's this famine, like an absence of meals, an absence of food. And so they end up going out of where they're supposed to be to this place called Egypt, and they stay about 400 years in Egypt. So they're in Egypt for a while, and uh, they, uh, they kind of progress from uh, citizens of Egypt to servants of Egypt to slaves of Egypt. That's kind of what happens over the 400 years. They move from citizens to servants to slaves. And uh, about 14, 1500 BC, 1450, somewhere there, uh, they are in absolute slavery and captivity, and their life is miserable. And God sends them a kind of a, a leader, a pastor who's going to lead them out of Egypt. This is where they do all the plagues and the Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. But at the very end of it, there's these nine plagues trying to help Pharaoh finally get some awareness that he is unrighteous and he needs a savior, right? And they, um, they continue to do these things and nothing gets better. And finally, God does something horrific. And it's called the Passover. And what happens in this moment is God, God tells the whole nation of Egypt that if they don't repent, if they don't obey then he's going to wipe out the firstborn of all their children, all their livestock. He's going to wipe it all out. It's devastating. He tells them this. And then he says, there is a way by which you can be passed over, meaning you won't lose your child. You won't lose your livestock. There is a way, and it comes through repentance. And the way you repent is you take a perfect lamb, and you acknowledge that that lamb did nothing wrong. And yet you're going to slaughter the lamb, and you're going to have this feast. You're going to eat and drink and be merry. You're going to enjoy that God is still good in the middle of all the chaos. Right? You're going to enjoy all those things. And you're going to take that lamb and you're going to take the blood from it and you're just going to cover it on your door. You're just going to cover it on your door. At night. Middle of the night. You're going to have this feast and then you're going to go to bed and this angel of death is going to come and take what's rightfully his. The firstborn of all creation. Now, everybody, they could have repented. They could have called on the Lord. But those who decided to repent and do what God called them to, those who decided to follow him and follow the rules, God covered. And so what happens is there's this great, devastating moment in history where hundreds and thousands, if not millions of people lost their lives. And finally, Pharaoh goes, go, go, leave, leave, leave. And finally, finally, the Israelites are freed from servanthood and slavery. And it sets them up on a trajectory to finally, eventually get to the promised land. So, that Passover pointed to this moment that would happen for all people at some point where God would cover their sins, cover their unrighteousness with lamb's blood. Now, the next one, uh, jumping ahead a long time, right? So, this is thousands of years before Jesus. Now, here's one here. We're going to call it the Last Supper. So, this is so crazy. It's actually happened on the same night or probably on the same night as the Passover feast. So, after this moment happens from here to here throughout history, people every single year, still to this day, still pause and have this Passover meal where they celebrate that God passed over and saved them and freed them and cleansed them, all those things, right? And so, hundreds of hundreds and hundreds and over a thousand years, 1,500 years, this continued to happen. And on a night, about three years into Jesus' ministry, he's sitting with his disciples and he breaks the news to them. They're tabling. Big feast. And they're tabling. And he goes, hey guys, I'm not going to be here much longer. And they're going, no, 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 Jesus. We we need you to stay with us. And he goes, hey, it's going to be okay. And he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He says, believe in God, and I'll believe also in me. And then he goes, in my Father's house are many rooms. You know, you know how it works, right? And I'm going to go there. I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
that where I am, you may be also. And they go, well, I, and then he says, hey, I, the way that you get there, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they go, no, we don't know how to get there, right? And they go, no, 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 I, hear me, guys. I am I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one gets to the Father but by me. This isn't some dogmatic thing. This is just specific. And here's the deal. And then what he does, it's so beautiful. He sits with them in the middle of this tabling, and he's uh, pastoring them and all their anxiety about what's going to happen next. And he decides in that moment to share something with them. And he goes, hey, hey, hey. See this bread? And he grabs some bread breaks it and he says see this see this this is my body broken for you you know how for thousands of years we've been celebrating this passover meal where there was a lamb that was slaughtered to cover the sins of our people right to make us right before god and so he's going see this this is my body that's going to be broken for you then he takes some wine and he pours out this is going to be my blood that's going to be shed for you remember remember how there was blood shed in the passover and it was covering hear me this blood that represents it's going to be my blood the way that that lamb was slaughtered. You know, John, my, my buddy, my cousin said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's me. That's me. And he says, Look, look, you can trust me. And he says, This is my blood that's shed for you. And they have this meal together. That's their last meal before Jesus gets arrested. And he gets brutally beaten on a cross. And then he dies. His body was broken, his blood was shed, and they were devastated. In fact, Peter goes back to fishing. He's devastated, right? And then, 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 Jesus comes back to life. By the way, there's another meal that happens. See, I have fish biscuits for breakfast. It doesn't make any sense to me, right? But there's this meal. Don't tell him to cover that. And he invites him. And he then says, hey, look, look, see, see, see. You can now trust me. Check out the scars. See, this is my body. It really was broken. My blood really was shed. I, I covered this. You know how the, the Passover lamb covered your ancestors? I am covering you. You will be covered for all eternity. That's what he, what he tells them, right? And then, then he says, but I'm going back to the Father. And then he ascends. And the next thing we see in Acts chapter 2 is they're carrying on the tradition. They're still tabling. In Acts chapter 2, it says that they met in each other's houses, right? They were tabling in groups. Everybody was connected to a group, and every group was connected to a mission, and every mission was connected to the least, the lost, and the lonely. And so they were in a group, and they were hanging out, and it says they were committed to the apostles' teaching, and they broke bread together, and they gave thanks. They literally are still, they were still doing this. They were carrying on this tradition all the way from the Passover, all the way from the Last Supper, and they were breaking bread and sharing wine together, and acknowledging that God's body was broken, and his blood was shed. Right? And so from that point to now, we still get to do this all the time, and we're going to in just a few minutes. But that's not the last meal in the Scriptures. In fact, the last meal in the Scriptures is called the Wedding Supper. It's so crazy. It's another party. Huge, huge party. And Jews get weddings right. They throw a week-long party. But here's the crazy thing. The guy who's writing about this party, John, he's writing on this island called Patmos Island. So they basically, all these Christians were beat up and martyred and killed. And what they realized, and every time the, the Roman government killed another martyr, it's not like the, the church fleed or shrunk back. They increased. They go, we can't kill people anymore. So instead, they start exiling. So they took this guy named John. This was Jesus' little buddy who was one of his disciples. They boiled him alive in oil. And then they sent him to an island to be all by himself. And when he's in this island all by himself, God meets him. It says, and God met with John on the Lord's day. So he still brought his presence. Jesus still brought his presence post-death, post-resurrection, post-ascension, right? He's with him, and he gives him this great vision of what's to come. And he goes, John, let me tell you about what's going to happen. And he describes this great wedding feast, this huge tabling, a great meal where God's people are going to be the bride. 
And Jesus is going to be the bridegroom, and we're going to come, and we're going to have a feast for all eternity. And so God gives John this vision, and he does the best he can to try to describe this moment that's going to happen somewhere in the way, you know, I don't know, in the future. I don't know how distant, but in the future. And let me just read to you what it says. This is Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 6. Then I heard, this is John speaking, what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage of the Lamb has come. So this whole picture that starts, you know, thousands of years in the past, in the future, is going to the marriage of the Lamb, that the covering is going to happen, right? And his bride has made herself ready. So he's describing us as the bride, bride, and he does this throughout the scriptures in Psalm chapter 45. He tells us as the bride that we should listen. Oh, daughter, consider and give ear. He says, forget your people in your father's house. That's repentance. Forget what you knew. Why? For the king, the bridegroom, is enthralled, captivated by your beauty. That's how he sees his people. So honor him, for he's your Lord. And so there's this moment, he's going, hey, one day there'll be this huge reception and it'll be beautiful. In verse 8 it says, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. This is the white dress, right? Now some of you wore the white dress when you weren't supposed to. No judgment, right? But we know, like, what are you going to do? Not wear the white dress and your mom and dad are there going, you should have... Wait, why are you wearing that color dress? Right? You, you understand, right? The white dress, the, you know, the, the purity of those things. And so what, what is happening here? This is the old ancient history that moment. And so it's going, no, no, no. You are going to be made perfect and righteous before God. You are seen as pure and clean. No matter what happened in your past, you and Levi and everyone else are going to be made righteous before God. For the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. You will seen as, be seen as perfect without blemish. And the angel said to me, this is John still talking, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Guess what? You're all invited. This is your invitation. You're all invited. He wants you to table with him. And I'll show you how in just a second. And he said to me, he also said it to, to John, these are the true words of God. Write it down. They are true. If he says it, it will be done. There will be a return, and there will be a beautiful, beautiful feast. So how do you get in on the meal? Fair question, right? How do you get in on the meal? Like, if you're invited, how do you get in on it? No. It's really nice. says, John, while he's still on Patmos Island, before this, that Jesus shows up and says, hey, I need you to kind of tell the church some things. There's some things they got right, and there's boys some things they got wrong. And one specific church, he tells them to write to is this church called Laodicea. And there's another meal in Laodicea somewhere, uh, we'll put it here, but it kind of applies, we'll put it here, kind of applies to all this, right? So this church at Laodicea, remember, is timeless and timely, meaning it was timely to a church then, timeless, just as important to us. And this is what John tells that church, written by Jesus. This is what Jesus wants them to know. I know your works. Hey, church, you are neither hot nor cold, or cold nor hot. Would you, uh, would that you were either hot or cold? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He's basically going, look, you're, you're, you're just, eh. Like you're not passionate. You don't really care. You don't really get what I've done for you. You're not like, you're not a terrible pagan. You've learned to follow the rules. But you aren't passionate. You don't get what's available to you. You're not hot, nor are you cold. And you know nothing hot nor cold. Just taste, blah. 
Right? And so he says this. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Sound familiar? We don't need anything. He's going, do you not get it? He's writing to Laodicea, which is very wealthy, heavy exports of wool and gold and other things. He says, I count you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. See this? All the way back from the beginning. We're talking about thousands of years later. The shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes. Lots we could discuss and we'll cover it over time so that you may see. And then he says this. Hey, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So hear me. This is for you because I want you with me forever. So be zealous and repent. Then he says this. Behold, listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. See this? And eat with him. And he with me. You see this? You see this? He is literally saying, you want in? You want to eat with me? Guess what happens? I do all the work and I am here and I brought the bread and I brought the juice. I brought it all. It's all right here. Do you want it? You want it? All you got to do is open the door. All you got to do is open the door. And by the way, that is a message of salvation, but it's also a message of safety. Right? So something about opening the door means we have to feel safe enough. We have to create an environment safe enough. And so Jesus goes, you want in on the meal? You want in on the meal? All you got to do is open the door and I will enter and I will dine with you. So now that you understand that, brings us to this today. Communion. Got it? So when we think about communion, this isn't, oh, a cute object lesson. Jesus died for us. This is, this is his body and this is his blood. No, metaphorically, figuratively, right? But this is his body and this is his blood. And he says, behold, I stand in the door and the knock. You want me in your life. Receive me in your life. You want my presence in your life. Receive me. And then he tells us, and he tells the first century church, he says, look, look, take this bread, and uh, you, can, you can peel this off the top. If you're at home, you can grab your own bread. If you're out in the parking lot, hopefully you got one of these, this little wafer. And he says, you can take this, th- take this, right? You can take this bread. And by the way, you can do this for the very first time. Is this the very first time you can go, oh, I don't know about this. I'm going, no, no, no. This is Jesus metaphorically telling you that his body was broken for you, and you can receive him. In other words, he is standing at the door and ni- knocking, and you can invite him in. So you can take this, take this little bread. And he says, this is my body broken for you. Take, receive this. And do this in remembrance of me. Like this is his body broken for you. This is the meal that he has for you. This is it. This is the meal that's available to you. So, hey, middle school guys, we have the communion here, and we're just about to partake it. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus, in his last supper, would have broken it and invited them to receive it. Take this bread with me. Behold, he stands at the door and knocks. And he says, if you'll open the door, he will enter and he will dine with you. Will you dine with Jesus in his presence right now? And in the same way, pointing back to thousands of years of tabling and meals where one got it right and one set the path back to get it in it wrong. One got it wrong, and one set the path to get it back right. He takes the wine. He says, there's consequences for your sin. Blood will be shed. But behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you open the door, I will enter, and I will be with you in your presence, and I will dine 
with you. So would you receive Jesus' presence with you right now? One of the things I don't want us to miss in this, in the rush of time, and the band's going to come up here and all those things, is this isn't just something we get to do once a month. This is something throughout human history that's been done. There's been a tabling that's taken place, and the whole goal of tabling is so that you can be with God in his presence, so that you can experience God in his presence and adore him. So as we think about the songs we sing over Christmas, what we're singing about, thinking about is these songs where we get to adore him. Regardless if you're broken or lost or unrighteous or sinners or whatever those things, we get to adore him. And so I just would encourage you, as the band's going to lead us, to sing a song with us where we adore Jesus. Adore him. We worship him. And we experience him. Could we, for just a few moments, in the middle of Christmas season, just enjoy his presence with no other rush. So Jesus, you've given us this opportunity. Will we not waste it? Will we not rush it? And would we welcome it? Would you receive your presence? Declare that there's no place we'd rather be than here in this moment with you. And God, will we repent? Will we change the way we think? Will we invite you into every part of our life? And will we receive the joy and the peace that comes with that? And then we go partner with you in ministry. Would you hear these words as worship this morning? Would you stand with me as we sing?
sang a song called, Oh Come All Ye Unfaithful, and we talked about how we're never truly worthy. Um, but what you took today, the communion that you have with God, that makes you holy. Jesus came for us. He came for you. He came for me. And so my prayer for all of us this week is that we would have moments this week where we would adore Jesus Christ, adore God in all his glory, give him that glory, and allow him to give us our worth and our hope and our peace this week. We hope that you have a great week, and we will see you back here next week.